today on Maine Calling, Wisdom from a Life at Sea. Nothing teaches you to read the waves and winds like sailing on a ship for months on end. Author Elliot Rappaport captures that in his new book, Reading the Glass, A Captain's View of Weather, Water, and Life on Ships. He's been sailing as a captain in the maritime industry since 1992, and he's also spent much of that time teaching others how to navigate the seas. I'm Cindy Hahn. We'll hear about how important it is for a mariner to understand weather and how sailing to far-flung parts of the world opens your eyes to everything from history to climate change to human nature. What can we learn from those who sailed the seas in the past? And what does the future hold for our changing planet? Main Calling is coming right up. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. Our guest today has spent much of his life sailing the world's oceans. Elliot Rappaport sailed as a captain in the U.S. maritime industry since 1992, and he's currently a faculty member at the Maine Maritime Academy. And he's the author of the new book, Reading the Glass, A Captain's View of Weather, Water, and Life on Ships. For those of you who are sailors and have experienced longer journeys aboard a ship, tell us about your ocean adventures and the lessons you've learned. Join the conversation, email talk at mainpublic.org, post a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. Elliot, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So the first thing I want to ask you is not about sailing, but about writing, because your book, which is uh, such an interesting read, it, it just goes into all this detail about science and history and geography, but also just about life on the ship and people and the places you encountered. So I'm wondering, first of all, were you planning on writing this book for all these years? And also, did you take <laughs> notes and write in a journal every single day to get all those little details right? Yeah, well, the book sort of started, uh, I spent a lot of my career uh, in sailing ships and also sailing ships that um, were focused around, in, at least in part, a teaching mission. Um, and uh, the, uh, you know, the maritime profession is is one where there's like a tremendous, um, tremendous tradition of shared information. You know, there's a very a strong culture of explanation, I think, because so much of your learning has to take place on the job and nobody can ever really know enough about anything. And um, you know, I've always been quite interested in weather and actually, so the book sort of began as, um, an assemblage of essentially teaching materials. You know, if somebody wants to learn about weather, uh, you send them into a textbook and it looks a lot like their ninth grade science book. And, you know, at that point, the process kind of ends. So I was looking for some, um, sort of brief and, um, you know, clearly, but simply written explanations of weather. Uh, and I think that was kind of the germ of the book and those, those materials actually for quite a while was just stuff that I would circulate to students or would refer to myself, you know, if I was trying to clarify something either for myself or in a teaching situation. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I began to think about actually develop, developing them into a book, you know, what I found or what I was sort of advised was that, you know, this profession that I'd been in, uh, in my whole professional life, 
uh, it was pretty opaque to most people. You know, I'm a mariner and all my colleagues are mariners and all most of my friends are either mariners or, or seagoing scientists. So for all of us, it was very familiar. But I think to the people, you know, sort of on the publishing side that I began talking to about the book, they're like, well, actually, you know, you're not in a very common occupation. And can you share more about that? And so that sort of became sort of one of the through lines that helped to tie the, uh, you know, the scientific content together. Um, and as right. far as where the other information came from, you know, I was never really a, I was not an assiduous keeper of journals, but occasionally, you know, I would write things down if I thought they were interesting. And, and certainly again, you know, the, the marine industry, it's a great record keeping culture. So if I was ever curious about sort of where I was, when, or, uh, general conditions, or if I just, if I wanted to um, jog my memory in some way, you know, that was, there was a lot of stuff that was there just sort of as a reference. That's really something. Well, tell us about, back up a little to your story and how you ended up spending so much of your life as a professional mariner. How did that all come about? Uh, you know, I just, I got into it, um, you know, just sort of incidentally, I, mean, I grew up in Southern New England. I grew up on Cape Cod, um, just kind of around small boats and, uh, you know, at some point uh, near the end of high school or at the beginning of, of college, I began to I sort of became aware that, you know, it could be a profession uh, in a number of different forms. And, uh, you know, so I did um, I did a little bit of work like a lot of people just found some work um, on the waterfront, you know, in boatyards and on small commercial vessels, uh, things like that. And then um, got some excellent advice, which if I was interested in um, traditional sailing ships, I should come up to Maine and sort of. Uh, I basically ran away from home <laughs> um, <laughs> and moved up here um, while I was partway through, still partway through college. And that's sort of, I spent a number of years working um, in the uh, the commercial sailing fleet in the, the Penobscot Bay Windjammer fleet. And that just sort of became, you know, I stayed interested in uh, traditional sailing ships um, and, uh, and also in education. And so those two things just sort of went together and it was just, you know, um, Kind of went went from an avocation to just sort of what I did uh, over over time, and I had a couple of um, great opportunities along the way to get involved with some you know really exciting programs, and so that um, you know that was very sustaining. Well, so in the book, as you describe these really long journeys that you take, you describe a lot of the challenges. It's just the day to day hard work, and then there's the the weather and the rough seas and and. It sounds like a pretty tough life. So what what would you say as far as um, the challenges, but also the payoff to living on a ship? Yeah, I think on a well-run ship, there's relatively little chaos. Um, you know, I think as a as a lifestyle, I think probably the most difficult part to most people is just a sort of constant, you know, coming and going. I mean, you, you know, everybody lives on land ultimately. So uh, you're sort of building a, a lifestyle around um you know, you have a household ashore of some sort, and then you have, you know, your time on the ship. And so that's, I think for most part, that winds up being the most uh, challenging part of it. Um, you know, on the ship, it's a workplace and there's a routine um, and you have work that's focused around that. And uh, I think that, um, you know, people are, people are attracted to, uh, to sea stories, uh, to, you know, hair raising sea stories, but, you know, it's mostly, it is mostly a routine and, and the chief challenge is just involved sort of maintaining the routine through you know sometimes things aren't that exciting sometimes they are but frequently they aren't and so it's the um you know maintaining a, a quality quality accomplishment of important tasks um, right. you know, over a long arc of time right because you may be at sea you know there's a certain amount of tedium involved and 
certainly that's when the details are most important. Well, you spend a lot of time describing how important the ability is to read the weather is to the whole thing. And that, I'm sure, keeps you on your toes and keeps it from being tedious. Um, but what's interesting, I think, is there's that comes across, at least, that you have a respect or reverence for the old way of navigating, the old way of doing things, of just reading the stars and, and understanding the clouds and being able to, you know, understand the old navigational charts. Um, but then also acknowledging that modern technology <laughs> is helpful, too. So just talk about that, that balance or, you know, do you prefer the old ways to the new or how does that feel for sure. you? Sure. Yeah, I think that, um, well, in terms of weather, um, I think it's very important. Like there's really, particularly at this point, you know, in the, the digital, um, you know, the age of digital technology and remote sensing and satellites and I mean, there's really a miraculous amount of information um, about weather, uh, but it's still, and I teach an introductory meteorology course at, at Maine Maritime Academy. And so I tell the students that it's really an important part of that is still to put yourself on the map. You know, you sort of need to, um, you know, I think in the book I compare it to like you need to be able to read the street signs here. If you're in an unfamiliar city and you have a map, you still need to know what street you're on to make use of the map. And I think so in terms of weather, uh, observing and understanding what's going on around you uh, is really important because, you know, the, um, the weather forecast products, you know, things like weather maps and uh, text forecasts and things like that are, uh, they're incredibly powerful and frequently very accurate, but you still, uh, the grain size is still large enough that, you know, if, if you need to sort of identify what the features are uh, and sort of put your, place yourself on the map with the weather to really make best use of the, the forecast products. Um, and then there's just also, I think, the, the appeal of understanding your environment in an analog way. Um, and that kind of goes beyond that, you know, just, uh, and I think that, that applies to navigation also, you know, Celestial navigation is still still a compulsory part of what you need to know as a professional mariner, um, you know, because it is it's a legitimate backup for, for the electronic and digital tools. But I think it's also it's another way that just kind of it ties the whole, you know, the world of navigation and geography and astronomy together. Um, and I think, you know, like like a lot of people, I think, appreciate being able, be able to have a complete picture of things in their head, you know, whatever, wherever it is you work and live. Um, and so I think, you know, traditional methods of, of navigation and sort of weather observation um, fit into that very strongly. I like that there was a part where you mentioned, I think you were just on land in a city somewhere trying to figure out which way to go. And you're, you were more <laughs> lost in that situation than when you are out at sea, because you, you automatically were looking to see if you could see the sun or the stars or something. Um, yeah, I don't know if, it, you know, if that was, it was direct. I just, uh, yeah, I do a full disclosure, tend to get kind of deserted by my sense of direction sometime on land. <laughs> well, I wonder if you can tell us also um, what stood out was you mentioned at some point um, talking about the Polynesian Islands, one of the places that you go to and you describe so vividly, but just about, you know, how did those folks way back in the day first populate those islands by <clears throat> just... Um, you know, somehow knowing uh, they're on these tiny vessels, right? And they don't have any of the modern tools. So how did they figure out how to how to get to these places? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, that's an incredible realm of knowledge. And I'm, you know, far from an expert at that. I've been lucky kind of along the way to uh, to get to know and to speak with some people. There's, you know, several in the sort of Polynesian, uh, Polynesian world, you know, various uh, communities and, and countries in Polynesia, their, you know, voyaging societies over the last Three or four decades has been an incredible resurgence of of knowledge and activity. Um, so 
those are the people to turn to if you want the real complete explanation. But, you know, in essence, I mean, they had they had a robust system of navigation. Um, they didn't just get lucky. You know, they had ways to um, to go places and come back. And as you say, across, you know, huge distances in, in what were essentially open boats. Um, and it was very sophisticated. It was sort of different from Western. I feel like in, you know, the sort of Western methods of a lot of things involved, you know, the storage of accessing stored data um, and, you know, the uh, the Polynesians, you hear the most about the Polynesians, but, you know, they were sort of the most prominent, there were a series of voyaging societies, well, you know, voyaging cultures all over the world, really, um, you know, in the Pacific and beyond. And, um, you know, those, many of those navigational methods, um, you know, seem to re revolve more around, um, you know, stored knowledge um, and familiarity and the ability to recognize, um, you know, ability to recognize the sky, the ability to take cues from things like wave features, uh, cloud formations, um, and uh, you know, marine life. Um, so it was a, it was really a, a composite. Um, and you know, the the people that I have talked to about that who are, um, you know, navigators in, in that realm, it really is. It's about an individual accumulation of uh, of knowledge. So you just have to spend a lot of time doing it. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, taking the information out of the environment that you're navigating through. Um, but, you know, very sophisticated. And as I said, you know, the more that people learn, the more clear it is that there were, uh, you know, repeatable transits of these great expanses of ocean. It wasn't just, you know, one trip, they got there and they settled and they were done. It was a, you know, it was an active uh, culture of navigation that went on for, you know, thousands of years. Yeah, it's amazing. Um as far as the meteorology aspect in your book, it's really almost a textbook as far as basically you, you take readers through every kind of cloud and every kind of storm and what they're called and why they do what they do, which is really fascinating. Um, bomb cyclones and polar vortexes and all that stuff. So I'm just wondering, is it you? Are you an unusually um, adept meteorologist or in order to do what you did does everybody need that level of understanding of meteorology? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a meteorologist at all. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think, uh, and that's kind of the first distinction is I think, you know, like I said, I teach a, a basic meteorology course here at, at Maine Maritime Academy. But, um, you know, I think most mariners are sort of, we're, we're end users, we're, you know, we're applied meteorologists, right? So it's being, you know, being able to understand the parts of the science that affect your day-to-day -day, uh, occupation. Um, so... Um, you know, meteorology is its own um, science, very sophisticated um, science. So uh, I think that, you know, for myself, you know, I think most of us wind up feeling like we can never know enough, right? And so you're always trying to learn, you know, to recognize the potential, um, you know, recognize what it's like, where you're going and uh, recognize, recognizing the signs of things. And, uh, you know, I think most most people that I've run into are just, you know, you're always curious about how things work. I think going to sea is one of those places where um, you're always reminded that you can never know enough. Um, so I think that that leads a lot of, I can't speak for everyone, but that certainly leads a lot of mariners to be uh, students of, of meteorology, if not trained meteorologists. Right. And there's a line in the book that says every day is a running comparison between what we have planned for the ship and what the weather has planned for us. So yeah, I'm that's just, about right. I'm wondering, um, what is the most daunting weather phenomenon that uh, if, if you're out at sea, which is it hurricanes or what is it that you're the most worried about? Um, 
I think, you know, it sort of depends on the vessel that you're operating and, you know, what its vulnerabilities are, what its, uh, what its strengths are, uh, you know, certainly tropical storms or, um, you know, hurricanes and, you know, tropical storms, um, in general are, uh, you know, are always the, the possibility, the prospect of them is, is frightening and, and threatening and certainly, um, you know the the relative unpredictability of them. I mean, everybody who goes to sea during hurricane season is always very focused on the potential development of hurricanes, and is always, you know, building a building a contingency plan for what, what you will need to do if you need to to react. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think from the uh, the standpoint of a like sailing ship captains, um, you know, I think are fairly conscious of the fact that sort of within larger talk about weather like at the synoptic scale which is the scale that weather maps when you look at a weather map that's generally referred to uh, by meteorologists as the synoptic scale and that's things like fronts and air masses and things like that but um sort of within within these larger events you know there are these smaller scale events that are you know sometimes not uh, particularly predictable and that's you know like the sudden onset of you know wind like within a line of thunderstorms um, you know, you might have one specific spot where there's a whole lot more wind. Um, and, uh, and we see those, I mean, that happens, you know, periodically, right? Every summer, um, you know, it's not just at sea, but on land, you'll hear about something called, you know, a microburst, which is just, um, you know, sudden, sudden wind event, um, typically from a, a thunderstorm. So it's, it's, you know, a concern with those less predictable, um, you can't say random, but, um, you know, less predictable things that happen at a much smaller grain size. Um, you know, that's something that, um, I think, again, particularly in sailing ships, you know, a, a large, uh, a deep draft, you know, commercial vessel, you know, might have other concerns. Right. I got a kick out of the comment you made um, where you said how TV weather forecasts, you'll hear them say, oh, a storm has safely gone out to sea and that <laughs> it's like it's not a problem anymore, but you're out at sea. And so it's not so safe anymore for you. Um, very interesting perspective. But we are talking about all that goes into sailing on the open seas, give us a call 1-800-399-3566. We're just going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Cindy Hahn. Today on the show, Life at Sea, Reading the Weather, Climate Change, Exploring the World. My guest is Elliot Rappaport, ship captain and author of the new book, Reading the Glass, A Captain's View of Weather, Water, and Life on Ships. Share your comments and questions, email talk at mainpublic.org, comment on our Facebook page or on Twitter or Instagram, or give us a call, 1-800-399-3566. And calling in now is Jonathan Radke. He's with Sailing Ships Maine, and he is the principal of Lewiston High School. Thanks for joining us, John. My pleasure, Cindy. Thanks for having us. Sure. So tell us about what Sailing Ships Maine does. Well, uh, Sailing Ships Maine focuses on taking uh, high school age students uh, out on the water in a variety of ships for you know variety of lengths of time. We we do we run accredited programs, uh, sail training programs that run anywhere from one week up to an entire semester. Uh, we have uh, essentially all up and down the East Coast, with our, of course our base here in Maine in the summertime. Oh, so that's so they're really how long are they out on the ships? Well, it depends. So currently, uh, you know, usually there's a there's a fall program uh, that runs. Uh, we run with uh, with an independent school that takes two and a half months. Uh, currently, they're finishing. We have some students 
down in the Gulf of Mexico. They started in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and they worked their way around, be ending up in Mobile, Alabama. There, there's sort of two groups, one from uh, Proctor Academy and then uh, from the Met School in Providence, Rhode Island, which is a which is a uh, public charter school, and they're doing a whole series on civil rights in the African diaspora uh, because Charleston, of course, was a large slave trading port, and then Mobile is actually where the last uh, African enslaved Africans were brought into the United States uh, in 1860, and so there's an opportunity to explore uh, that part of our history you know, as well as, you know, how the maritime world played into it. And then in the summer, we offer mostly week-long programs for high school students uh, on a variety of vessels, um, sometimes the 110-foot schooner Harvey Gamage. Uh, sometimes we also deploy some smaller schooners with six students and two, uh, a captain and, a, and an educator on board for, for shorter excursions. And then occasionally we get the opportunity to run to and from Bermuda now that uh, – now that uh, COVID's gone, uh, we did that prior to COVID, and uh, we'd like to pick that back up, a partnership that we've sometimes had with the Spirit of Bermuda, uh, which is an educationally-based vessel out of Bermuda. So lots of different options. Wow, that sounds exciting. And what have you heard from students about either what had the most impact on them or whether they consider going into maritime professions after that? So, uh, you know, I have yet to run across a student who who regretted their decision to, to go on a trip with us. Some of them have become uh, sailing junkies, you know, <laughs> looking for other opportunities to either work on shore or work uh, aboard uh, sailing vessels up and down the coast. Some of them spend some time with us and decide that, you know, they go on to, to study marine biology. You know, some we, we oftentimes will we'll take students in the summer programs up to Maine Maritime Academy to pique their interest. Um, and the Maine Maritime is always super welcoming of, of, of us when we show up and show students what the what the options are. So, I mean, you know, they, uh, we certainly get their attention. It's amazing to us, you know, how many students who are raised in Maine don't really understand that we're on the sea. You know? Right. And that, and, that, and that ocean opportunities are available to them. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for calling. That was John Radke with Sailing Ships Maine, and he's also the principal of Lewiston High School. Thank you, John. And Elliot, that probably sounds uh, fairly similar to what you do with teaching students as well. Is it um, the goals and aims are similar? Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of the programs, the educational programs I've been involved with have uh, been at the undergraduate level. Uh, certainly, uh, I was involved at, at Maine Maritime Academy for a number of years. Uh, they have a, a sail training program here that uh, have multiple vessels, but it was sort of um, the uh, sort of the flagship of that fleet is a, a schooner called Bowdoin, which is a, uh, a you know, historic uh, Arctic research vessel with a long main connection. So, um, and that, you know, a lot of that training involves people who are kind of already aspiring to careers in the maritime industry. So sort of you know, professional training. And then um, I've, I've done some work uh, more broadly with an outfit in, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts called Sea Education Association. And they run uh, undergraduate, uh, you know, uh, Atlantic and Pacific Ocean uh, undergraduate um, semesters at sea. Uh, the program is called Sea Semester. Um, and it's a, uh, their programs are uh, you know, ocean-going uh, training cruises that involve an element of uh, 
seamanship, you know, operating the ship and then, you know, a very rigorous uh, scientific research program also. So. Right. And that's, those that's... students, you know, many of them get shunted away from their, you know, <laughs> their careers as, you know, aspiring, you know, lawyers or things like that and and, and find their, themselves at sea also. Uh, but, you know, most of those students are, are passing through and at least considering other careers. Or like I say, it disrupts the plans of, of several because it's, it's a fairly, it's a fairly compelling environment. Um, I think particularly if you're, if you have multiple interests, um, you know, I joke with people about how, you know, it's kind of the ultimate occupation for somebody with a short attention span. But what that really means is there's always there's always a lot to think about and a lot to learn. So I think it's, it's compelling to a lot of people. Right. It sounds like a total immersion. It's really quite an experience. Uh, let's go to Virginia calling from Portland. Hi, Virginia. Go ahead. Hi, Cindy Elliott. So good to talk to you. Um, and so cool to hear from that last caller. I love the educational opportunities uh, that seem to be available. I loved sailing when I was younger. And I read a lot of like historical fiction that seemed to emphasize the importance of needing to know how to navigate by the stars. It seemed like an, like a skill I was going to need when I was an adult. Um, and so it's one that I developed and it seems not a lot of other people have. I was really struck by the uh, the comment about like not being able to navigate in the city because you're used to being able to look at the stars. And I'm pretty used to navigating in cities, but I have a similar experience of getting turned around when um, like when it's overcast and I can't see things. So I love that you're talking about the um, the navigational importance of Space and the sky. And I just had a very cool conversation today. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thanks for calling, Virginia. Elliot. Yeah, I mean, I'd add that, like, on the professional side, uh, that's still a compulsory piece of what mariners are required to know and learn. Um, you know, anybody who wants to be licensed as a mariner to, uh, as, a, as a, a deck officer, um, you know, to navigate and, and operate ships in an offshore environment uh, does need to know celestial navigation. And interestingly, um, I don't have all the, you know, so the chronology, uh, I'm not fully up on the chronology, but I know that for a while the, uh, the Navy, U.S. Navy, uh, got away from training in celestial navigation and they've actually gone back to it. You know, it's, a, I think, you know, it's still recognized in its value. And it's interesting that um, I, uh, for the past several summers, I've sailed as a celestial navigation instructor on the, the state of Maine, the Maine Maritime Academy training ship. Um, and uh, there's still a lot of enthusiasm for it. I think it's uh, you know something that uh, not only not only something you have to learn, but um, you know there's a tremendous amount of buy-in for the process, um, and uh, makes it a great deal of fun to teach. That's wonderful. Thanks for calling, Virginia. And now calling us is Carrie Whitaker. She's an assistant professor of coastal and marine environmental science with the Corning School of Ocean Studies at the Maine Maritime Academy. Thanks for calling, um, Carrie. And your experiences at sea are focused on marine research. What's what is it that you study? Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, I study um, marine ecology. I study the biodiversity in the ocean and how um, how evolution happens in the ocean. So that's that's really my focus of research. Starting with with the phytoplankton, they're the um, the base of the food food chain. So what parts of the world are you going to in order to do this? Um, I have been all over the world. You know, that's that's one um, advantage of being an oceanographer. The ocean is, you know, we live on a blue planet. So um, I've been to the South, sailing in the South Pacific, Gulf of Alaska, um, Antarctica a couple of times. 
um, to understand how populations of uh, phytoplankton are connected, but also other other important marine taxa. So in the process of doing that, you are spending these long stretches at sea, just like what Elliot describes in his book. How is how has that been for you? Is it challenging? Is it fun? <laughs> what What's the draw? Yeah, um, actually, Elliot and I are shipmates. We've we've actually sailed um, together multiple times um, with the Education Association on on sailing tall ships that are also um, fit for for oceanography. So um, something that that drew me to this this field was actually going out out at sea which i had that experience in graduate school doing doing research on large research vessels you know these are like 300 foot um research vessels that are um that are powered not with not not with sails um but after graduate school i got into um doing sailing and uh oceanography at the same time so um, i love being at sea you know that's something that's driven driven me as an oceanographer i think the um experience of being out out at sea is really profound um and for me the opportunity to do oceanography on a sailing vessel um has been a really immersive experience to um to, to see see the science in action and be um, uh, yeah kind of immersed in the elements in a way that I haven't been able to on on larger research vessels quite as much. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, thank you for calling. That was Dr. Carrie Whitaker, and she is an assistant professor of coastal and marine environmental science with the Corning School of Ocean Studies at the Maine Maritime Academy. Um, so, Elliot, this type of research is happening all, all around the world um, on these journeys. And so um, I know that you observed what's happening with climate change on some of the trips that you took up to Greenland and elsewhere. Um, what, what sort of science information are you gleaning from your, from your trips? Well, so climate change is kind of an interesting question because I think most mariners are sort of trapped in the day-to-day. Um, so, you know, you're dealing with one or another weather event um, that's, you know, uh, it's not like you can draw the line directly from that to climate change. And, you know, climatologists uh, spend a lot of time, um, you know, trying to filter out what the, the actual signal of, of climate is among, you know, the sort of, um, you know, the different patterns of the day to day and, you know, interannual events and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I actually... Uh, I took a couple of trips up to Greenland uh, some time ago now, fairly early in my sailing career uh, with the Maine Maritime Academy schooner Bowdoin, which, you know, had a history up in that part of the world. And uh, at that time, at least, at, you know, at our level, just, the um, you know, the sailing level, um, you know, the climate, um, the, the notion of climate change and the pace and extent of it were just, they're really just on the cusp of, you know, of, of identifying, uh, you know, of identifying what was going on. It was, so there was, um, you know, we actually met um, some members of a team up there um, that were connected to the University of Maine on that trip. And that was actually, you know, I was, uh, like I said, fairly early in my career. And they were they were working on uh, an ice core project um, up on the, you know, central Greenland plateau, the glacier. And, um, you know, that was the, uh, really at that point, it was the first time that I really learned about, um, you know, the, the notion of, of climate change in that aspect and the uh, the work that was being that was going on to understand and of course that's you know several decades ago and that's you know so there's been a, a long and continuing arc of um understanding and um you know these things become more and more clear but i think for um 
you know, Mariners, like I say, are fairly tied up in day-to-day events. Um, and then, so, you know, anecdotally, uh, you hear about things and certainly like looking back at trends, um, you know, over the last, um, over the last several, you know, the last six or seven years, um, you know, there's been a, a cluster of, uh, you know, above average hurricane seasons in the North Atlantic, I think between, uh, you know, 2015 and 2021, um, you know, there were six above average years for um, tropical cyclones for, you know, hurricanes and, and less intense storms. Um, and, uh, you know, they're certainly in the, uh, well, polar regions uh, in general, but certainly in, in the Arctic, um, you know, it's in the arc of time that I've been describing, you know, a place that was previously thought of, you know, more or less inaccessible, you know, the Northwest Passage and these places have been, you know, navigational routes that um, you know, are now pretty much fully open uh, for parts of the year. You know, the sea ice uh, re- retreat has been to the extent that, you know, um, there's now commercial navigation, uh, tourism, recreational sailing, um, you know, going on in places where pretty much would have been unreachable um, several decades ago. Um, and then uh, another place that's kind of interesting to me was a place where I haven't spent a lot of time navigationally and sort of, I think, the, to the it's kind of an invisible part of the marine industry to a lot of people, but that is, you know, inland rivers, uh, there's a tremendous amount of marine commerce in the Mississippi and Western river system. And similarly in Europe, you know, the great rivers of Europe, the Rhine and the Danube, things like that. And, um, you know, looking back, well, this past summer, um, you know, a lot of that was severely, severely curtailed by drought um, and, uh, you know, historic rainfalls and snow melt that was relied on to feed these rivers was, you know, not there. So there's multiple impacts. Um, but I think, you know, if you ask an individual mariner, like they've sort of been too busy running the boat, um, <laughs> they're not trained as climatologists, um, you know, so they're too busy, uh, you know, running the boat to, to really be able to draw direct lines between, you know, this or that storm or this or that trip and, uh, specifically with climate change. Right. They're living it. They're not necessarily <laughs> studying it, but that's great. Let's go now to Noah calling from Georgetown. Hi, Noah. Go ahead. Hi, Elliot. Um, I, I was a shipmate of Elliot's um, right uh, very near the beginning of his, his career. Um, <laughs> oh, hello, uh, Noah. Great to hear from you. Hi there. I'm just, it's just good to hear your voice anyway. Likewise. I heard you on, talking on the radio and thought I should call in and just say hi. That's so nice. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a former uh, crew person from Sea uh, Education and did a lot of a lot of trips. I don't know how many trips, trips I did with, with Elliot, but I uh, I married one of the other crew members and she decided we were going to swallow the anchor, so we did. And <laughs> sure. 30 years, but I've, I've followed, follow, I've been following you, Elliot, as, as you sort of progress at sea. That's uh, good of well, you to call you, in. Uh, thank you. I take this opportunity to tip my hat to Noah as well, um, and uh, to Wendy, and uh, I think uh, at Ships at Sea, you rely very heavily. You have these people, and it's one of the things that makes it such a great workplace is these, you rely on these people who seem to be able to do anything. Um, at any time. And I would put both of them in, in very much in that category, just people with talents in just about every direction you can think of. Well, thanks for calling, Noah. Nice that you called in. Uh, this is Maine Calling. We're talking about the lessons learned from sailing the world. Call 1-800-399-3566. 
We are taking another quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Cindy Hahn, and you're listening to Maine Calling. We are discussing Elliot Rappaport's new book, Reading the Glass, A Captain's View of Weather, Water, and Life on Ships. We invite you to join the conversation. Call 1-800-399-3566. Send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. Tweet at Maine Calling or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. And on the line with us now is Captain William McLean. He's the sailing master at the Maine Maritime Academy and was for a number of years the principal captain of MMA's flagship sail training vessel, the schooner Bowden. Captain McLean, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to uh, be here for Elliot and uh, talk about his book. I'm really excited about reading it myself. Yeah, well, did you always want to be a ship's captain and travel the world? Um, I went, <laughs> Not always, but um, once I turned 18 and I got a job on a schooner, I pretty much haven't looked back since then. Just been sailing on ships ever since. So what are, we've talked about some of the challenges for you. What are the biggest challenges of being the captain of a ship, especially for these kinds of extended journeys that you lead? Wow, yeah, I think there's lots of challenges um, sailing a ship at sea. I think weather is a big part of um, our daily operations and worries and thinking about um, because it's one thing that is just so unknowable. You can't ever really understand what's going to be happening with the weather at sea, and um, that can that can be a big challenge, I think. So what's the payoff then? <laughs> what are the rewards, and what's your favorite part of it? Well, when the weather is really great, there's really nothing better than being on board uh, a big sailing ship um, at sea, at sunrise or sunset, or under the stars. It's just a really incredible experience to be out there and kind of feel like you're floating in space in, in some ways. That's really something. Um, and you also have taught um, students like Elliot as well, right? Correct, yeah. Elliot and I have sailed together many times, and um, we've had, you know, semesters at sea and and also my time at Maine Maritime Academy. I've done many voyages to to Newfoundland and um, Quebec. And that's really where it's at for me, you know, connecting our students with the sea and understanding themselves, understanding each other, working together as a team, building their leadership skills and just understanding the world. It's really spectacular classroom. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for calling. That was Captain William McLean with the Maine Maritime Academy. And Elliot, do you um, second that? He mentioned some of the um, other skills, the sort of life lessons that students get from from being on the ship. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully concur. I think, you know, people, um, you know, if you're planning to go to sea, it's certainly best off to learn on as many different kinds of ships as possible. I think that um, you know, whereas they're fairly dated in some ways, uh, you know, sailing ships are, are a great tool for teaching, uh, you know, some of the fundamental skills of seamanship because you're pretty unbuffered from things. And, uh, you know, most things, getting most significant things done requires, you know, carefully coordinated work, um, you know, by a group of people, uh, you know, under sometimes difficult conditions um, and, uh, you know, really uh, 
you know, really, really increases or improves your sort of observational skills, you know. So I think that, yeah, just the, the fundamental parts about seamanship that are about, you know, communication and, and observation um, and, uh, you know, flexibility. And I think it, um, you know, as I was talking about um, a few minutes ago, just sort of the reliance on, uh, you know, talented people with multiple skills. And I think that's that's important on any ship. But I think that, again, a, you know, sailing ship is a, a complicated um, and, uh, you know, oftentimes sort of cranky enough piece of machinery that, uh, you know, it really relies on um, this, this really, you know, compels everybody in the process to learn as much as they can um, and to work together as effectively as possible. So, Great. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We'll go now to Greg calling from Sanford. Hi, Greg. What did you want to talk about? Hi there. Uh, I am a longtime sailor, but uh, only recently uh, started any type of offshore passages. And uh, as a coastal sailor, uh, including uh, chartering boats, I always was interested in, in offshore passages. Well, I became aware of a program called um, Offshore Passage Opportunities. Wondering if your speaker today um, is familiar with this um, and if perhaps uh, he has anything to say about it. It's uh, It's run by a Delivery skipper of 30 plus years, uh, who's basically retiring now, I think. But anyway, uh, uh, his name is Hank Schmidt out of uh, Huntington, New York. So I'm curious to know if uh, if uh, if your speaker today is familiar with with Hank and the program. Sure, Elliot. Uh, no, um, no, unfortunately, I'm not. Are there similar? Well, let, me, let me just let me just say um, for your listeners. Um, Anyone who is interested in sailing offshore and making offshore passages and would like to get uh, experience doing this, uh, this is a fantastic resource. Um, and uh, in a nutshell, it's easy to remember the, the website is Sail OPO, and the OPO stands for Offshore Passage Opportunities, which is what this is all about. It's about basically putting people, um, experienced crew, uh, and, and frankly, unexperienced crew in touch with um, owners, boat owners, uh, sailboat owners, and, and delivery skippers looking for crew. Um, and um, on that website, you'll also see something I did, which is what's called the SWAN program. And uh, this is uh, essentially where you can get some instruction, because this was my first offshore passage. I did an offshore passage from um, Newport, Rhode Island to Bermuda, and then to St. Martin. This was the North American rally to the Caribbean, NARC, as it's called. Um, uh, and it was fantastic. Um, and so, like I say, anyone who is interested in this really Great. should should check out this opportunity. Okay. Thank you, Greg. We'll try to share that information on, on our social media and website. So thanks for calling. Uh, we have an email from Mary Jane. Hawaii Key Rising by Sam Lowe, a former Maine resident, uh, navigated from a tiny Hawaiian island, sailed to Maine a couple years ago on a replica of ancient sailing canoe without charts or instruments, and it was a Book of the Year award winner. So thank you for that, Mary Jane. Um, Elliot, we're already getting close to the end. I wanted to hear a little bit about the travel aspects because the, the book um, also is somewhat of a travel log, and you get to go to all these fascinating places, Greenland, Spain, Samoa. Um, talk a little bit about that aspect of being a mariner, of just popping up in some um, totally far-flung place. I think it's kind of, it's a bit of a two-edged sword a little bit. You do get to go some amazing um, and, you know, very out-of-the-way places and you get to go there. I mean, coming and going from places as a, a mariner, um, you know, it's not the way most people come and go from those places. So you're 
um, you know, and sort of if you're if you're on a working ship, you're sort of you arrive someplace and you're kind of you know instantly attached to a a working part of the community. Um, you know, harbors, waterfronts, and you know, if you're um, you know a commercial ship or or even a, a yacht to some extent, you're you're connected to a much different part of the community than most travelers are. Um, you know, on the other hand, and particularly uh, again on on working vessels, on commercial vessels, I mean, most of the ships that I've um, I've worked on, you know, the focus is on spending time at sea. So your time, your time in port is uh, is fleeting, and particularly, you know, if your involvement, um, you know, if, if you're involved with the ship um, as a professional, you know, the ship kind of owns you a little bit. Um, so you wind up, you know, seeing a certain amount of stuff. You say, I'd love to come and, you know, do more exploring here when when I have more time or you know when the trip is over. But it is, um, you know, that it is a very magnetic part of the you know, profession is that you're, you know, you really never know where you're going to find yourself. And um... Well, I love the little details you do include in the book. And just a teaser for someone uh, thinking of reading it, look for the part about the Tahitian tattoo artist. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, let's go to Elizabeth now calling from Freeport. Hi there. I just Hi. love the show. And I, uh, I can't, I can't wait to read the book, Elliot. Um, the reason being, it's the timing is so amazing. I just got back from a two-week uh, sailing cruise on the 57-foot Emily Morgan from Grenada to Antigua, 314 miles. And I did a little research, but I really had no idea what to expect. And to say it was exhilarating um, is to say the least. It was just something else. We stopped at all the little Eastern Caribbean islands, and we had one of particularly harrowing um, adventure between Dominic, Dominica and Antigua where we hit a rain squall and um, it was intense. And so I really appreciate the skill of um, you and the other captains out there that get people safely from A to B when almost anything can happen. Well, thank you for sharing that, Elizabeth. And uh, I know harrowing rain squalls are something you're familiar with, Elliot. Um, yeah, and I think that was sort of what we were talking about earlier is that, um, you know, these sort of small features that you can, you know, you can anticipate and prepare for larger events. But, you know, there, and I think as, as Captain McLean was talking about also, you can never really, um, you know, it's the um, the smaller things that you need to be ready for. And in, particularly in the tropics, uh, you know, something like that. I mean, a you know, a squall, which is really just a, just a marine version of a thunderstorm, um, you know, they can... Uh, maybe fairly compact, but they can be over fairly quickly. You know, it can be a, you know, a 10 or 15 minute event, but that can be a very tenor, very exciting 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and it's that, you know, uh, sailing in the tropics is, is most of the time is, you know, is idyllic, but then you, you run into features like that, and particularly for a small sailboat. Um, yeah, it can be very challenging. We'll go now to <laughs> Sam calling from Massachusetts. Hi, Sam, you're on the line. Hi there. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. Great. Um, well, it's a fascinating show. Um, I I don't know. I've tuned in late, but the Polynesian Voyaging Society in Hawaii has uh, constructed a replica of an ancient uh, vessel, a double-hulled um, canoe, they call it. It's 100 feet long. Uh, it's a catamaran style. It's the kind of vessel that Polynesians use to explore and settle the entire Pacific Ocean without instruments or charts or even writing of any kind a thousand years before Europeans 
um, even discovered the Pacific existed. And um, this group has sailed this canoe um, also around the world um, and visited uh, Maine. Um, I wrote a book about it called Hawaii Rising, made a movie about it, which you can find on YouTube, um, called The Navigators, Pathfinders of the Pacific. And so I'm, of course, really interested in this program, um, but also interested in just presenting the idea that um, a quote-unquote Stone Age uh, society managed to uh, accomplish what it did. Right. Well, thanks, Sam. We I'm did sorry, talk about uh, that a little. Could you say again your name, sir? Uh, it's Sam, S-A-M, low, L-O-W. Um, yes, hi, Sam. We met during my time. At, we met during my time at Sea Education Association. Um, and uh, it's very nice to thank you so much for calling uh, into the show. And uh, we're uh, very lucky to... You know, very lucky to work with you and also to get to know some of the people at the uh, Polynesian Voyaging Society. Uh, never enough, but yeah, I fully, uh, fully agree with uh, the things that you're describing. Great. Thanks for calling, Sam. And uh, real, real quick, let's squeeze in Sandy calling from Farmington. Hi, Sandy. Go ahead. <laughs> hey, Elliot. It's Sandy. And uh, we worked together on the boats in Camden many years ago. And uh, I'm just going to put the local plug in for anybody listening to the show. If you ever want to get out sailing on these boats, go on the Windjammers, um, you know, out of Camden, mid-coast area. And I'll put a plug in for the Angelique and the Merry Day. And uh, people should work on these boats. Um, I think Ellie and I were both through college, and I'm a nurse. I went to meet 30 people every week. Hopefully somebody took me off to Africa or something, but met my husband local and stayed in Maine. So, Go sailing uh, on the coast of Maine. <laughs> great. Thank you, Sandy. And Elliot, just a few seconds to follow up on, on Sandy. Oh, great to hear from you, Sandy, after all this time. And yeah, I would support that plug 100%. There's a tremendous preservation, of just in addition to just being a really cool thing, a tremendous preservation of, of skills um, in, in that whole fleet. And clearly quite a sailing community in Maine. Obviously, everybody knows you, Elliot, who's calling in. Apparently so, right? <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, Elliot Rappaport. When you're on the radio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Elliot Rappaport oh, sailed so as much. a captain in the U.S. maritime industry. He's a faculty member at the Maine Maritime Academy, and he is the author of the new book, Reading the Glass. Today's sound engineer was K.G. Akinmuladun. Our theme music was composed by Mike Jandro. Visit maincalling.org to find our past shows and to sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'm Cindy Hahn, and you've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.